I hope it sounded a little bit strange in your ears when I said, turn to Psalm 119, verse 113. Because you don't encounter that very much in the Bible, do you? Where you're taking a look at the 113th verse of some chapter of the Bible. But of course, Psalm 119 is different. It's different because it's arranged acrostically in 22 different sections of eight verses each. And what we've been doing here on Wednesday nights is taking either two or three of those eight verse sections and examining them verse by verse and seeing what God would speak to us through that examination. Now, when we say it's acrostically arranged, every uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet is represented. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and there are 22 sections to Psalm 119. And each one of the eight verse sections corresponds to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The letter of the section right in front of us here is the Hebrew letter Samek. And every line in the original Hebrew of this section of eight verses begins with the letter Samek. This was done as a memory aid or just as a way to poetically challenge and express and to do something wonderful unto the Lord and unto the glory of God and his word. Because the great consistent theme throughout the entire psalm, Psalm 119, which is made up of some 172 or 176 verses, I forget, which is 176 verses. The great theme throughout this psalm is the greatness and the glory of the word of God. Therefore, in the psalm, it speaks repeatedly of God's word, but after the fashion of Hebrew poetry... It uses different words to express Holy Scripture. For example, we find God's word referred to as the law, as the word, as judgments, as testimonies, as commandments, as statutes, as precepts. Now, don't think when it uses these variety of words that it's referring to a different section of Scripture. It's not as if, well, the first five books, that's the law, and the second uh, few books are the judgments, and then there's some other books that are the testimonies. No, in the way it's used in Psalm 119, in a very generic sense, these different terms are used to refer to the written revelation of God, the Scripture that is given to us. So with that sort of background in mind, and I just repeat it because we've been a while in Psalm 119 and we've still got a few weeks left to go, but what we want to do is take note of that fact as we head now into verse 113, the section known as Samech. Here we go, verse 113, where he says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Now, it's a very interesting way that he begins this section, declaring that he hates the double-minded, but he loves the law of God. The psalmist knew the frustration of dealing with those who were double-minded. They were uncertain. They were uncommitted in their life. In contrast to that, the law of God is sure and certain. I don't have to tell you this truth in life. You've experienced it yourself, that people are inconsistent. People will let you down. Sometimes even the best of people will let you down. Sometimes they let you down because they're weak. Sometimes they let you down because circumstances are simply beyond their control. But we know that human beings are fallible, 
but the word of God is not. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. It's an interesting word that he uses there for double-minded. It's the same word, or at least it's very similar to it, to what Elijah said when he confronted the people of Israel as they flirted with, or sometimes committed spiritual adultery, so to speak, with the god Baal. When Elijah stood before them and he said, how long will you uh, waver between two opinions? How long will you dance between two opinions? Have these two different ideas. Instead, he says, no, choose this day whom you will serve. If the Lord God of Israel is God, then serve him. If not, then serve Baal. And double-minded people are always a challenge, are they not? Double-minded people, as James Montgomery Boyce wrote in his commentary, they're people who know, (coughs) excuse me, they know about God, but they're not fully determined to worship and to serve him only. They they want God and the world. As it's been said sometimes, double-minded people are those, they have enough of the world in them where they can't really be happy in God, but they have enough God in them where they can't really be happy in the world. Many of you know what this place is like. See, I think we should agree with the psalmist where he says, I hate the double-minded. But the first place to look for double-mindedness is not out in the people that you know. It's to look at it for it in the mirror, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to hate double-mindedness, hate it within yourself first. Hate it within yourself far before you point the finger at somebody else and hate it in somebody else. And the psalmist has this attitude because later on, you're going to see in this very section, he cries out to God, oh God, uphold me. Oh God, support me. This is a man who knows that without God's strength, without God's help, he is weak and wavering. He is the one who's double-minded. So friends, we need to challenge ourselves with this. Lord, I don't want to be a double-minded man, a double-minded woman. I want to have one mind and have it to be utterly, totally towards you. Notice this one way to decrease double-mindedness in your life is to love the word of God. Right here, verse 113 again. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Right? Do you see the connection between the two? Loving God's word. Well, it will help you to not be double-minded. Because when you love God's word, you want to keep it. When you love God's word, you value it. And so he says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Isn't that a beautiful way he phrases that? Lord, you, you are my hiding place and my shield. I know you so well in and through your word that you have become a hiding place and a shield to me. I find it interesting that he doesn't say your word is a hiding place and a shield, although that might be true as well. But he says you, God, you yourself. You see, the psalmist didn't love the word of God just for the words on the page itself. He loved the word of God because the word of God brought him into fellowship with the God of the word. It was the most reliable contact. It was the most reliable form of expression and communion that he had. He knew most reliably who God was because he knew him in his word. And so he could say, You are my hiding place and my shield. The the hope that he had in the word of God, it was not mere academic or intellectual knowledge. It was relationship and it was security in God himself 
You are my hiding place and my shield. You know, we need a good hiding place, don't we? I thought about how we might express this today if we were translating this psalm all brand new today, or at least in contemporary vocabulary, which vanishes pretty soon. It might not be a good translation because it might not survive 10 or 15 years. But what if we were to say, Lord God, you are my panic room, right? You're the place I can run to and hit the button and I'm safe. It doesn't matter how many enemies are on the outside. It doesn't matter who's gunning for me at that moment. I am safe in you. You're my hiding place. You're my tower. You're my strength. You're my shield. You're my safe room. You're my panic room. God, I can trust you and find refuge in you. Now, this verse has an experience behind it. I want to stress that. Because sometimes when we talk about our great love for the Word of God, and believe me, as you know, as we've made our way through Psalm 119, this psalm is drenched with a love for the Word of God. It's very important to stress that this is not mere theoretical knowledge of God or theoretical knowledge of His Word. No, this is experiential. You see, He knew this. He knew what it was like to be attacked And he knew what it was like to find safety and comfort in the arms of God. Now look at what he says here in verse 115, where he says, Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. This is a very rare departure in the ongoing conversation that he has with God about his word. Isn't that mostly what Psalm 119 is? For the most part, Psalm 119 is a conversation with the psalmist that he has with God about the wonderful glory of God's word. But here he departs. He he takes his eyes away from heaven just for a moment to look around at the enemies, at the evildoers who bothered him. And he says, get away from me, you evildoers, because I will keep the commandments of my God. He knew that the best cure... For the presence of evildoers in his life was to put some distance between him and those evildoers. Therefore, he said, depart from me. Can I tell you something about this? It indicates for us that the psalmist was careful in the choosing of his friends. I think this is a very important thing, in particular for young people, but certainly not only for young people. We need to be careful about the friends that we choose. Now, I'm not trying to say for a moment that all of your friends should be Christians. No, no, no. I hope that you have mixing in those who have yet to know Jesus so that you can be a light in the midst of darkness, so that you can bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. Not in a moment for am I trying to say that we should choose our friends only among our brothers and sisters in the family of God. But listen. You're wise to look at the character of your friends and understand that they will have an influence on who you are and who your character is. It's been said this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Isn't that especially true of young people, is it not? How moldable we are. So without for a moment suggesting that we should only select our friends among believers, we should select them nevertheless carefully. And understand that people have an influence on our life. And if there are people who are just absolute evildoers who have the risk of having a great influence on our life, then we should say what the psalmist would say. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now, it's not that we 
indulge within ourselves some sort of ascetic seclusion as if we were monks or nuns within some kind of monastery saying, no, 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 we'll have nothing to do with this world. My friends, Jesus called us to be salt in this world, right? And sometimes the most needful thing was that salt, sh- salt to get out of the salt shaker and into the world, right? We don't for a moment consider ourselves just be secluded people where we're trying to build a, a Christian fortress of seclusion all around us. But again, we recognize that we have to keep that tension that Jesus mentioned, that tension always in mind, that we must be in the world, but not of the world. And we can err on either side of that, right? Have not many Christians erred where they have simply said, no, I'm going to retreat completely from the world. I will not mix with those that are not believers. No, all my friends, all my business, all my social circle, all my contacts, it'll only be with those who name the name of Jesus. Well, friends, then you're not obeying Jesus' command that he said we should be in the world. But then the other side of that, the other guardrail on that road is that we should not be of the world. So in the world, but not of the world. And look at the determination he had that would guard him in that. In verse 115, he says, For I will keep the commandments of my God. This is why he wanted some space between himself and evildoers, because he was committed to obedience, committed to keeping the commandments of God. You could say that this was very much the spirit of Jesus when he steadfastly resisted the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. He told the devil to repeatedly go away, and he repeatedly relied upon the word of God. Now, in this very difficult thing that we have of being in the world, but not of it. Here, the psalmist knew how difficult he was. That's why he pleads to God for help, starting at verse 116, where he says, Uphold me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Hold me up, and I shall be safe, and I shall observe your statutes continually. You see, the psalmist knew that he could not stand in this world or before his enemies without God holding him up. And with this continued support from God, he knew that he would have the strength, the spiritual resources to live, both physically and spiritually. His idea that this was that this support where he says, uphold me, this support would come according to God's word. It would come both in a way consistent with God's word, but it would also find its source in God's word. God, you've got to uphold me. I hope you know what it's like to have that kind of reliance on God, where you simply look to God and say, God, you must uphold me. My strength, my weight, I'm leaning on you, God. In the way that you might lean upon a crutch or a cane, where if that cane were to break, you'd fall down. It's upholding you, isn't it? That's the way we do in our life. We put our trust upon God so as if he were to let us down, we would collapse. But that's the good news, isn't it? He will never let us down. He will never cause us to be ashamed. And so he says, uphold me according to your word that I may live. According to James Montgomery Boyce, who really has an excellent commentary on the entire book of Psalms. He says that in the Middle Ages, under the monastic order of the Benedictines, when a novice's period of preparation was ended and he was ready to become attached to the monastery for all of his life, 
There was an induction ceremony in which, with outstretched arms, the novice would recite this line from Psalm 119, verse 116, three times. He would say three times, Uphold me according to your word that I may live. Uphold me according to your word that I may live. And then he would say it a third time. You see, then the entire community of monks would say it. And then they would sing a portion of a great song. It was their way of acknowledging that those vows could only be kept if God would uphold that person. And friends, I'm not recommending to anybody that they imitate the life of a monk in this. But I would recommend very highly that we be living and doing things that are so wonderful before God that we could not do them except God would uphold us. That is faith, is it not? To step out on something bold enough, big enough, glorifying to God enough to where if he does not uphold us, we're going to fall. And to see the greatness of God come in then and do it. As he says in the second part of verse 116, he says, And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Hold me up and I shall be safe and I shall observe your statutes continually. His great hope was in God. Therefore, he could cry out and say, hold me up, Lord. Then I'll be safe. Then I will observe your statutes. I love that second request in verse 117. In the second request, he says, support me, God, so I can observe your statutes continually. Friends, this is really wonderful. God, would you please work in my life so that I can obey you better? I'll be honest with you, friends. I was quite convicted. In reading this and studying this and meditating on this before tonight's teaching, I asked myself, when's the last time I prayed that prayer? When's the last time I prayed, oh God, won't you please work in my life so that I can obey you better? I thought, man, that's been a long time since I prayed with that kind of heart. Where I thought that I wanted God to work deeply in my life simply so I might obey him more perfectly. Now that isn't that where my heart should be? Isn't that where we all should be? Listen, we desire God to work in our life for many reasons, right? We cry out to him for help for many reasons and many of them are wonderfully legitimate. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you in calling out to God for many different reasons. Call upon him. But isn't one of the great things that we should call upon him for? Is God work in my life so that I can obey you? Many times I think of this obedience as just sort of being a byproduct in my life instead of something that I should have a passionate concern for, for the glory of God, just as the psalmist did. Well, he goes on, continuing into verse 118, where he says... You reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Here, the psalmist speaks of the righteous judgment of God. After all, when he says, you reject all those who stray from your statutes, God has given man his word. He's given man his word and his revelation in creation. He's given man his revelation in conscience. But most specifically, and this is the thing that the psalmist is concerned with in Psalm 119, he's given man his revelation in his word. 
And those who receive the wonderful gift of God's word and reject it. Well, what excuse do they have before God? Well, is it not righteously said of them? You reject all those who stray from your statutes. You know, it's sobering to think for us in our generation. What will we do with our accountability before God? What will we do when we could try to say for a moment before him or before his judgment seat, Lord, I didn't know. What, did I not give you enough Bibles, God would say? 500 years ago, maybe they didn't have enough Bibles. You've got plenty of Bibles. Friends, me, I go to my office, I go to my home. I'm drowning in Bibles. I'm swimming in them. I've got Bibles everywhere. What possible excuse would I have? Maybe I would say to God, well, God, I didn't have the time. I heard a man made a remark the other day. It was very challenging. It's so challenging. I'll share it with you this evening in an effort to sort of deflect some of the guilt off of myself and to put it onto you. (laughs) You really, you know, that's how preachers work, don't you? (laughs) The man said that one of the main uses of Facebook and Twitter in the plan of God is to give man no excuse before God on the day of judgment. When they try to say before God, I didn't have any time to read my Bible or to seek you. (laughs) Ouch, right? Ouch. Isn't it funny? Some new technology comes on. We find time for it, right? Of course we do. Now look, here's the point. I'm not trying to make somebody feel guilty over Facebook or Twitter, although probably some of you should feel guilty if you (laughs) spend an inordinate amount of time on such things. But look, here's the point. When we reject what God has so beautifully spoken to us. Ladies and gentlemen, if it is true that the glorious God enthroned in heaven has spoken to us on earth and has given us a reliable, inerrant word that we can understand and that we can trust in, and that we can see enormous benefit in our life, if that is true, should that not make a massive difference in our life? Now, that's why the psalmist can say something that seems so harsh here, but actually it's very true. Saying of God, verse 118, you reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Do you know what dross is? Well, specifically... In the refining of silver, dross is the scum, it's the impurity that would rise to the top as the silversmith would work over a a smelting pot where the silver would be melted and he would seek to purify it. Dross is really very much like sin. Dross takes away from the shine and the glory of metal. Dross makes metal dull. Dross is deceptor. It's not deceptive. It's not silver, but it seems like it. And it's not gold, but it seems like it. Dross is not made better by the fire, only by taking it away. Dross is worthless. It has no value, no purpose. The silversmith doesn't store up all the dross and do something wonderful with it. He just burns it up in the fire. Dross is actually damaging to metal 
because it is an opportunity for the metal to rust. Metal with dross in it can be eaten away. How much like sin is dross? That's why he says, you put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. You see, the consideration of the righteous judgments of God made the psalmist praise God even more. He praised God for his word and for his righteous measure of judgment. Because I love your testimonies. Then he says something very interesting at the very end of the section where he says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. You see, as the psalmist considered the righteous judgments of God, he looked to his own life and understood that it was not entirely righteous. And so ideally, this sense of trembling fear would make him run to God for God's atoning, covering sacrifice. You see, as the psalmist considered the judgment of the wicked that was due to them and that would come upon them, as the psalmist considered that, he thought very carefully and he praised God for it, but then he took it to his own heart. Friends, you know, it can be a dangerous thing to, wor- to read and to take in the word of God with the wrong mentality. Because if you read and take in the word of God with the wrong mentality, you can have this idea. You go, oh, God, judge them for their sin. Judge those wicked people. You know all of them, Lord. All of them who are just like not me. Judge them all, Lord. (laughs) Now listen, I'll tell you what it should do. The consideration of the righteous judgments of God should make us look to our own life, should it not? And say, Lord, I know that I'll never be justified before you by comparing myself with another person. And by the way, isn't it true? That the comparisons we make between ourselves and someone else when we're judging our relative righteousness of them, so often those judgments are filled with error, are they not? But nevertheless, even if the judgment was accurate, even if it could be accurately said, you, in comparison to they, you are righteous. Even if it could be accurately said, what does that avail you before God? That's not the judgment that God will look to. And therefore, we say, oh God, Your righteous judgment of the wicked, it makes me look to my life and it makes me tremble before you and it makes me realize that more than ever, I have to trust in your atoning sacrifice. Now for David or whoever it was that wrote this psalm, as I have said before, most of the older commentators would assume that it was David, King David of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel who wrote such an amazing psalm. Later commentators typically disagree. I would say it's probably David, but we can't be certain. But if this was King David who wrote this, could you imagine David then considering the next time he would offer a bull before God to take away his sins, the next time he would lay his hands on the head of that bull and confess his sins, and then that bull would be sacrificed by the priest in a proper atoning sacrifice and atonement would be made for his sins or at least they would be covered until until the messiah would come and offer the perfect sacrifice well that was for the psalmist who lived on the side of the cross looking forward to the cross we live on the side of the cross looking backwards to the cross and we say lord i know my own sinfulness 
Please, Lord, I tremble before you, and I put my trust in your atoning sacrifice. Friends, there are few things worse in this earth than a proud believer, than a super-righteous, holier-than-thou person, right? We should never let our passion and love for God's word lead us down such paths. And it doesn't have to. It really does not have to. Because all we have to do is take these things about the nature and the character of God and look in the mirror about them seriously first. And God will help us to do that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your greatness and your presence with us. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is our panic room, that he's our safe place, and that we find refuge in you, Lord, not only from evildoers and the corruptions of this world, but, Lord, we find refuge even from our own sinfulness that would consume us. No, Lord, you have rescued us, even from your righteous wrath because of the great work of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in this time uh, where we give ourselves a few songs of worship before we consider the next section of Psalm 119, since we've spoken so clearly, I think, about the greatness of God's atoning sacrifice, why don't we open up the table of communion right now, right? Why should we wait until we cover the next section of Psalm 119? So during this time of worship, the table of communion is open. Come forward if you are willing to receive it in reverence and honor to Jesus, remembering his great work upon the cross for you. Then as we worship God right now, please come forward and receive communion.